The Man in the Mirror by Lisa Fitterman. The journey to becoming the world's first full-face transplant recipient is fraught with challenges. He stares at the face in the mirror, a stranger's face, framed by a shock of grey hair and sideburns, a slightly creased forehead, a fine, pointed nose, thin lips that form a small O, and a sharp chin speckled with stubble. He strokes it with his fingers, tracing its planes and angles, marvelling at the unfamiliar texture. I'm still me, he says fiercely to himself. It's me with a new face. Jerome, a private man who asked that his last name not be used, is stepping out from the shadows. He is the world's first full-face transplant, from his hairline down to his neck, with tear ducts that work, eyelids that blink, and a five o'clock shadow he will have to shave. Arlette gazed down at her new baby, Jerome. It was January 30, 1975. What is it? she asked, frightened. Only a few hours old, the tiny infant, his hands bunched into fists, had a drooping right eyelid and a terribly swollen upper lip. The doctor said only that an ophthalmologist should see Jerome because he needed surgery on the eyelid so his sight could develop normally. So the ordeal began, a hint of what was to come. When Jerome was a toddler and later in primary school, he had more procedures to snip the odd growth from his face. But it would be nine years before doctors diagnosed his condition a relatively common genetic disease called neurofibromatosis 1, or NF1. The symptoms can include skin discoloration and benign tumours that grow along nerves. Doctors told Arlette the gene spontaneously mutates in up to half the cases, a cruel lottery that chose her younger son. The disease could get worse as he got older. No one could have imagined how bad it would get. Although Jerome did not develop skin discoloration, when he hit puberty the tumours came fast and furious. His face became a grotesque mask, the right side slipping down, his nose squashed, and his mouth bowed down under the weight of his skin. Hey, monster! Strangers called from across the street. Others referred to him as Quasimodo, after the deformed hunchback of Notre Dame. Heartbroken, hurt and cowed, he never responded. Jerome's brother, Ludovic, 18 months older, became his defender in public. At home, Ludovic barged into his brother's bedroom. Would it be so terrible for you to cry sometimes, he asked. I cry, but not you. Jerome didn't answer. How could he admit that not crying was the only way he could keep control? Only once, when he was twelve, did he let his emotional mask slip. He had just come home from school. After carefully shutting the front door so it wouldn't slam, he stood in front of his mother and in despair asked, Why did you bring me into this world? During high school and then a move to Paris, where he studied film studies, his condition grew worse and his emotional shell hardened. Paris may have been the city of lights, but for him it was a city of shadows. He hated riding the metro because passengers leapt up to move away from him as if he was an animal. And although he loved the theatre, he could not find work even behind the scenes. Like the character in the film The Elephant Man, a circus performer whose intelligence was masked behind a facial deformity. He wanted to shout, I am not an animal, I am a man. But his silence and isolation deepened. His only confidant was Ludovic, who had also moved to Paris. 
Sundays they'd stroll in the Bois de Vincennes at the eastern edge of the city, and in Jerome's darkest moments he would phone his brother to vent. Then one day about six years ago, Ludovic fell in love with a young woman and followed her to Niort, a town in western France. What am I going to do without him? Jerome asked his mother, weeping. Call me, Arlette replied. Even at three in the morning, especially then. Then, in 2007, Arlette, Jerome and Jerome's stepfather, Jacques, saw a TV documentary about a man who had the same condition and had had a partial face transplant. His face was so disfigured that his mouth opening actually fell below his jaw. He too had spent his life in hiding. Arlette grabbed Jerome and Jacques in excitement. She remembered that the first partial face transplant had been performed in France in 2005 on a woman who had been mauled by a dog. But she never imagined the procedure could be done on someone with a genetic condition like her son. She wrote down the name of the doctor, Laurent Lantieri, then she urged Jerome to contact him. Call him. Give it a chance, she urged. The doctor seems to know what he's doing. It took Jerome four months to get up the courage to make an appointment. Finally, in 2008, he found himself sitting across from Lantieri in the surgeon's office at Henri Mondeau Hospital in Cretel, southeast of Paris. His mother and his aunt waited outside. Lantieri, now 47, was the chief of the hospital's plastic surgery department, a straight-talking man who liked to say, we do quality-of-life surgery here. He is of medium height, with sharp features and gentle brown eyes. His practice includes cancer patients, burns victims, and he even counts among his patients a woman who was scalped when her ponytail was caught in a farm threshing machine. Lantieri had successfully completed four partial transplants. Now he was ready to go further. Yet what he envisioned for Jerome had never been done before. A full face transplant, complete with tear ducts, eyelids and ears. He ran his finger over Jerome's face to show what he was talking about, fingers running along his hairline, down behind the ears. Lantieri explained that a face is part of the body's largest organ, the skin, and no different in that sense from a kidney, heart or liver. The surgery was a natural progression from other organ transplants, complete with a complex system of capillaries, veins and arteries that had to be removed from the donor and reattached. It was piecework of an extraordinary kind, done under a powerful microscope, stitching with sure hands to attach tiny blood vessels. I don't expect to look like Alain Delon or George Clooney, Jerome said, but can you help me? I think so, Lantieri replied. It wouldn't be easy. Jerome would have to submit to a battery of tests beforehand to ensure he had the physical strength to survive the surgery and the mental strength of having someone else's face become his own. A donor with the same type of skin and a blood type compatible with Jerome's would have to be found. He'd have to take anti-rejection drugs for the rest of his life, so his immune system wouldn't attack new facial tissue as if it were a foreign intruder. Drugs with potential side effects such as kidney disease. Worse, if Jerome's body rejected the transplant, he would die. Yet, Jerome thought, with the speed the disease progresses, if I don't take the risk now, the surgery could be useless. The interview had taken two hours. Arlette jumped up when she saw him walking out of the office. He looked so dejected. I have a lot to think about, he said. It took about eight months and several meetings with Lantieri for Jerome to decide. 
After a lifetime of pain and rejection, Jerome had learnt never to do anything without considering the consequences. Was a short trip to a cafe worth the stares and pointing? Was a potentially deadly operation where he would be given someone else's face worth the much greater risk? He thought of the distinction Lantieri made during one of their meetings between face, which was an organ, and visage, which encompasses emotion and expression, everything that makes one human. Yet the procedure was less than five years old and hard to do. But Jerome had come to trust Lantieri and his team. The operation was the best chance he had to improve his life. And when he asked himself if he was prepared to die, he finally found the answer in the question he had posed to his mother years ago. Why had he been born? Yes, Jerome told himself, if I can't take that risk, I might as well already be dead. The wait for a donor was agonising. Several months passed. Finally, in late June 2010, the call came. Because French law requires such information to be kept private, Jerome would never know his benefactor's age or where he died or why. Jerome went to the hospital, excited and afraid. Prepped to go into the operating room on June 27, he thinks that this could be the last time he'd ever see his family. Lantieri had prepared for the surgery down to the last stitch, from tools to hand movements and where the surgical team members would stand. In the first stage, doctors spent six hours removing the face of a man who was brain dead. After the surgery, the face was placed on ice and rushed to Jerome's operating room where his face had been removed. It took Lantieri and his team another six hours to painstakingly reconnect the nerves and vessels to Jerome, anchoring muscle and skin to the underlying bone. This involved surgery done under a high-powered microscope. In all, about 500 square centimetres of face were attached like pieces of a puzzle. This vessel here, that nerve there. The hardest part was attaching the four tear ducts and the surrounding eyelid tissue because Lantieri had to cut through the thin, fragile nasal lacrimal duct covered by the nose's bone. Although he'd practised, pressing on a tiny drill, it was the first time he'd done so on a living patient. The operation was a success, but the real test came a week later, when Jerome was to see himself in a mirror for the first time. Jerome saw his face, still swollen, and he was as yet unable to speak or smile. But to Lantieri, he gave two thumbs up. He approved. Some days later, Jerome stood in front of a mirror again. Turning this way and that, he was amazed and surprised at what he saw. A thick streak of grey against his own dark brown hair that marked the line where his new face began. Three months after the operation, Jerome admits he is no George Clooney, but rather a work in progress, a man who is slowly turning a donor's gift into his own visage, with his bone structure to give it shape and his personality to give it soul. He is happy to take 13 pills each day to suppress the immune system, which would otherwise react to the transplant as a foreign body. Medically, he still has a long way to go. One lower eyelid needs surgery to pin it up, and he must do exercises every day to teach the muscles of his face to move better. His voice sometimes sounds thick as he forms consonants, but his family notes a daily improvement in his speech, and he is no longer afraid to be out on his own. Sporting a trucker's cap that shades his face, Jerome can wander through the Brittany village where his mother lives, or sit in a local cafe and enjoy sipping a drink. After each sip, he lifts a finger to his lower lip to 
to accustom it to the sensation of closing. He can laugh. When he does, the sound comes from the back of his throat and his expression does not change. But I'm smiling inside, he says. Jerome looks forward to a future where anything is possible. When he had the operation, people feared he'd wake up a different person, but he's still the same guy. Bookish and quirky, a man who wants to find a good job in the theatre or in TV, and who is ready to open himself to love. He is enormously grateful to Lantieri and his team for helping change his life for the better. And for the first time, he's amused to find that he's beginning to show a hint of what most people already have, a sense of vanity. Look at this nose, he says. It's perfect. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. 